You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And on this episode, the 102nd episode, feels good to be in uh, triple digits, we speak to none other than Warwick Can. Uh, he was, if you watched the 100th episode special about the London 2012 Olympics, uh, he was obviously in that. And this is the wider, larger conversation that, that was snipped from. He's been requested a few times. Uh, he was involved with uh, Great Britain and Basketball England from pre-2012. I'm not sure what year he was hired, maybe 2009. Uh, and stayed on post-2012 until about 2016 and was responsible. I mean, he had a few different titles, um, as you'll hear in this, and was kind of uh, a dual role between GB and Basketball England. But he was kind of the pathway performance uh, coordinator, overseeing sort of the junior development pathway. Uh, that inv- included all junior national teams as well. Um, and so, yeah, this was a really interesting conversation. He's now back in Australia. That is his home country. Uh, so has a wealth of experience, uh, even obviously before coming to the UK. That was how he was able to get the job and has an interesting take on kind of the issues with uh, basketball in this country. So, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. We spoke all things pathways. Uh, we spoke regional institutes of basketball. We spoke um, about the area's emphasis that was rolled out at the time, a kind of curriculum to, uh, for coaches to, to follow to help develop players. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think you'll get a lot of value from the conversation and kind of find out his take on on British basketball. As always, before we get into the show, have you checked out our Patreon account yet? Uh, Patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash H-O-O-P-S-F-I-X. If you enjoy the work that we do, uh, whether it's these podcasts, whether it's the content we put on the website or on social media, if you value it, uh, please consider making a monthly or annual contribution. It doesn't have to be a lot of money. We're talking a few quid a month. You won't even notice it leaving your account, but it goes a long way in helping us do the work that we do uh, in trying to grow this sport and get more eyeballs on it. Um, Essentially, if everyone that listened to this podcast every single week signed up for £3 a month, uh, it would make our lives a lot easier and maybe not so financially strained. So please go and consider it. Check it out, patreon.com forward slash hoopsfix. As always, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, please leave a comment in below. Uh, let me know what you think about what Warwick has to say. You can reach out to me on every single social media platform at hoopsfix. And of course, if you prefer just one-on-one interaction, drop me an email, sam at hoopsfix.com. That's enough from me. Here is this week's show with Warwick Can. Warwick, it's been a it's been a long time coming. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. So yeah, like just to start, I think for for context for people, um, obviously you work for British Basketball, did a did a stellar job across the national team, national team programs. But just uh, what's your background like before you came into that role? Uh, I know you had a sort of pretty extensive background in elite sport, but just for context for people, kind of what exactly had you been doing before you got involved with the British Basketball program? Uh, yeah, look, I was a long time. Um basketball coach in Australia um, at the semi-professional and elite youth level, basically. Um, I always chose to have another career rather than coach full-time in basketball. Uh, So I started coaching very, very young uh, and then accumulated the knowledge in the the years. So I think I coached at um, head coach at 13 National Australian Junior Championships, which is kind of the elite pinnacle 
Uh, I was selected as an All-Australian um, coach, which was an honour at the under-18 level. Um, and then, you know, coach won titles like you normally do um, within the leagues, within my home state, and then uh, set out on a journey that ultimately took me out of teaching. So I was a teacher originally and a coach, um, much like most people. And then um, I jumped into full-time coaching, and then I jumped into full-time basketball administration. So I was headhunted by uh, a state institute to manage um, high performance across sports. So I did that for 11 years, um, as well as coaching semi-professional with Townsville Heat. Uh, won a title with them, so they were the feeder to the fully professional team, the uh, Townsville Crocs, who were a very successful uh, franchise. Uh, so from there, um, then I kind of took the leap of faith to, because uh, my wife was British, Welsh to be exact, and um, decided to go over and uh, experience the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, mainly for my wife's sake, but also to experience a bit of the basketball. So went for 12 months and ended up there for six and a half years. So when you uh, saw the role advertised with British basketball, like I think was the official title, was it Performance Pathways Coordinator or Head of Performance or some some type of like performance role, pathways type role? That was um, originally was the position. The, that was the original position. So I think it was uh, the, the Performance Pathways uh, manager or coordinator, whatever it was, but it was basically a 50-50 split between England Basketball and GB. Um, and it, the job basically was to align the pathways so that they fed into the national GB teams going forward to set up that kind of infrastructure, if that's what it meant to be, and just look at all those things, um, yeah design a curriculum which ultimately became the areas of emphasis and a few other things so it was only a 12-month appointment um, but if successful that was going to be extended but after six months it changed because Ron Wattilla I don't know what his title was at the particular time with GB so he was with GB um, his circumstance changed his wife worked in the oil industry so she got transferred back to Calgary I think it was so Ron, who was part of the establishment of the whole GB thing from the early days and one of the principal managers along with uh, Chris Spice, uh, he moved on. So within six months of me arriving to do a particular job that could be done for three years, there was a shuffling of the deck chairs, so to speak, and then I became uh, head of performance um, for uh, GB basketball, uh, overseeing England basketball. And then eventually I brought Vladin Drasonovich in to fulfil my old role as Pathways Coordinator, working with England Basketball, but funded um, jointly with GB Basketball. So my roles went from the, uh, the Pathways to Head of Performance, and then when Chris Spice moved on after the 2012 Olympics, I became the National Team Director for that, for that next cycle, which was fairly turbulent. So talk, talking about that uh, that first role, that initial role, like seeing seeing that position advertised, um, and I guess kind of what was your knowledge of uh, British basketball, basketball in England in, in general? Um, and I get well, I mean, when when you look at it, surely it, it kind of seems like a, it's a big task, right? Like, what were your uh, sort of initial thoughts on kind of uh, where you could have impact and, and what were the 
sort of the biggest things that needed doing to help uh, sort of grow the performance end of the sport in this country? Well, I didn't know. I knew that Tom Maher, who was a you know a friend and fellow coach in Australia, was there. Um, I didn't know Chris Spice. I knew of his reputation in Australia. I didn't know Ron Mortilla. I didn't know England basketball. I had coached against Keith Mayer uh, when he was coaching New Zealand time, teams. So I knew Keith from his days of he was coaching New Zealand under 20 teams in those national championships that I was talking about that I was a coach. So he knew of me. Um, I spoke with him briefly, but um, I didn't know anything really apart from those people um, about it. Uh, you know, I read the strategy. I knew what they were trying to do. I felt like it suited my skill set. Um, and as I say, the timing was good in that my wife had lost her uh, parents. Um, uh, we had an empty nest, so to speak, and... Um, she wanted to get over to the UK and I wanted to experience uh, Northern Hemisphere basketball. So that was the motivation, but I didn't really know much about it. But as you learn is, you know, you only take on jobs that you want to take on. And I was up for the challenge uh, based upon what I knew about it. And I guess, do you, do you sort of uh, recollect those early, you know, when you first started getting your feet wet and kind of trying to get your head around the state of play uh, in, in this country, kind of what your early impressions were uh, compared to maybe your expectations sort of coming in? Yeah, I, I do. <laughs> Some fond stories with all that. Um, I, I, I'm a one that's kind of, um, I don't get lost in the boardroom. I like to know what's kind of happening out there on the court. So I can remember going around and uh, we were trying to uh, implement a better development structure, uh, structure within England basketball. I think they were called area performance centres when I got there, but they weren't everywhere and they weren't for both genders and it was a bit of a hotchpotch of everything. So I can remember going around and calling for uh, applications for head coaches of those positions. So I auditioned. I went and watched people coach to before I signed off on them, basically. And for the reason that you've highlighted, because I wanted to know what the standard was. So um, uh, needless to say, I, uh, at that stage, recognised the huge gaps within coaching. Um, uh, and the other thing which is fair to say, which is upon reflection, because I've taught for 16 years in the education system here in Australia, principally all, all in New South Wales, I was in, interested in the education system and how that contributed to sport and and how it lent itself to education. And uh, I didn't like, uh, if I can be frank, I didn't like the the culture of yes, coach, no coach, do it this way, coach. You'll be spoken down to that real hierarchy that um, was certainly not in an Australian's fabric as a coach. Um, so I can remember those of being a, a standard at um, the level, the way people communicated knowledge, their preoccupation with talking about information rather than actually teaching and coaching. So that, that you know, some of those people are still really good friends. I keep in contact and have a good laugh with, you know, now. But at that time when they were representing themselves and the system as coaching, 
yeah, I was that that kind of shocked me a bit. Um, but that led me into the other things like the areas of emphasis and trying to get people up the stage and trying to work within coach education within England basketball to see one what they'd been doing and two why it was like it was. Um, so in those early days in the pathways. That was very um, groundbreaking, you know, uh, early on, first year and a half, I'd travel to Barking Abbey every week from Sheffield and work with coaches there, Mark and Lloyd and Karen or whoever else was there at the particular time. Um, so that gave me a good insight, um, you know, people like Mark, John Collins and other elders that I'd, that I'd kind of... Um, Tried to identify, I made sure I went and spoke to them just to get their take on the whole thing and see where the gaps were. So in the early years, I did a lot of that, respecting elders, talking to elders, seeing what people were actually doing on the field and then, then setting about raising standards and improving processes. What was, what was your understanding of why uh, there was that gap in sort of the coaching knowledge, coaching development? Like why hadn't it, you know, by the time that obviously you were, involved, you were, you were hired in 2009. So, you know, 2009 is basketball has been, had a presence uh, in England for, for a long time. Um, so yeah, why, why hadn't it happened? Like why wasn't there a greater knowledge of, of coaches from your understanding? Um, I think basically there was no overall system that coordinated those people. There was no purpose, you know, like uh, the regional performance centres or the APCs were an avenue to get common, common purpose, but they weren't maximised that. Someone wanted that job because it was something they could put on their resume rather than something they could work with uh, collaboratively. Um, the club structure over there... Uh, was totally different to the way Australian basketball is organised at a volunteer level. So there's an economy of scale. So I think the individual nature of being a basketball entrepreneur and owning a club or owning the club licence meant there was more people working in isolation rather than collaboration. So that was a big difference to me, that people could just go and form form a a team, you know, recruit players and then enter them in a league. That kind of doesn't happen in Australia. You certainly recruit, but you don't you don't change the entity or the composition of um, established competition structures that easily by just changing the name. Or and I think that I guess what I'm saying is that if I on reflection and I said this to the people when I was exiting is that they need a better governance structure across so-called teams or groups of teams. Um, so that was the reason. People were working in isolation. Some people didn't like other people, which is normal. You know, people have enemies and friends and there's associates and stuff, but there was no collaborative purpose. And GB, with due respects, didn't resonate with a lot of people, so that that didn't necessarily do it for Scottish people or, or whatever. So... Um, so trying to get that common purpose was really something that I kind of tried to do and get that collaborative process. But certainly the reasons for it were the nature of people being the master of their own kingdom at whatever level and and being in total control and not necessarily wanting other people to intrude upon that area. 
So in, in just to clarify, in um, yeah, so exactly like you said, it's still it's still like that. So you know, I could set up a team next season, try and enter them in various different competitions. So in in Australia, how does it work? Like you kind of you have the entity, the club that has been awarded, say a license, and then that becomes the club, and you can't just change competition structures. You can't enter new leagues. Like what would happen if a I don't know a new club wanted to start in Australia or, or something like that? How, well, there is selection criteria about like. We have clubs, and clubs grow. They could be from 1 to 10, which is kind of like the England system. Um, but we all then also then have affiliated associations who have a, a charter or governance at a higher level above that club, be it competition or development or whatever. And then above that, you have the equivalent of the national governing body, but you have the state governing body. So you, you can't form an association unless you've got a certain economy of scale, as in members. And then once you have that, then you have the right to build and enter competitions at age level. Uh, and then, you know, there are incentives that go with that and everyone tries to be competitive against each other. Um, but like for one example, it's just Queensland, but... Uh, in the Premier League NBL 1 um, competition in my state, um, you can't nominate a men's team unless you nominate a women's team. So that that broadens the perspective of what you're trying to do. You're trying to grow basketball. You're not trying just to get a licence like the Netherlands or England or, or Germany or, or whatever else. So it's completely different to that. But the social fabric... And the social drivers within Australia are obviously different to what they are in the UK, and that was a huge difference. But I think it gets back to the governance model, uh, and I did say that to Stuart Kellett on the way out that I thought that they needed to look at the, the governance model of what they were trying to achieve because you need economies of style. So when I came in, uh, what do they call them, the local leagues, you know, who owned the local league? Was it attached to uh, central venue leagues, I think they called them. Yeah. There were central venue leagues and then there were clubs and there was all this mass tier and I'd have conversation with Keith and go, well, you know, how is it that they're a member? Well, everyone was a member, but there was no real fabric behind, you know, what, what that meant in terms of the agreement or the governance with it. So I think that's kind of just something that grew that particular way, but that is markedly different to what it is in Australia. So after you kind of got an understanding of the state of play uh, and what you were dealing with, um, kind of what became your priority? Like, what, what what did you feel like the first thing that you needed to do was to 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 really kind of make a difference to the sport? Well, I had to fulfil my position description, which is a joint pos- uh, position between GB and England. And for the first year or so, I worked out of the England basketball um, offices and enjoyed the camaraderie but I was always the guy when I I was always the GB guy I was never the EB guy you know Um, and that was drawn out of the um, so I realized that I had to kind of get this greater purpose get this alignment you know get the buy-in of elders as I call them um, get them involved um, at least in a strategy or, or in targeting what needed to be done. And then I had to prioritise it. So I couldn't do a whole lot in the coach education sphere other than 
with national team coaches for England, which I had responsibility over in the early years. So I could work with Steve Bucknell or Alan Keane or whoever it may have been at that particular time. You, you're able to have influence over those coaches because of your priority. But the only reason you had influence is because they allowed you to have influence. But that was with the intent of trying to, um, to improve standards. So I guess... Getting back to your question, I tried to prioritise the things. So the Barking Abbey, in the, and it changed, Sam, because it changed from the first six months to the next contract cycle. So it was a moving feast. Um, but I tried to stay true to the things that they wanted with the pathway. So as a result of that, you know, the ACE thing became important to me. The Regional Institute was always important to me, uh, although we kind of never really got there. Um, the uh, areas of emphasis was a labour of love, which I felt duty-bound to give because that was one of the things they wanted in the first position. It took me a long time to do it, um, but I, I used it as a vehicle for people to take it with me. So people like Tony Garbelletto had input into the defensive uh, section of that. You know, Mark Clark, John Collins all had their, their input and a take of it, you know, and if you were doing it again, you'd probably edit it down a bit, but at the particular time, it was meant to be a, um, an, a document to get people on the page, and I think it kind of did with the Alan Keynes of the world and the younger coaches, and it didn't necessarily grab the older coaches because they're the ones who've got the existing practices, etc. although it did have their endorsement uh, in doing it. So I tried to get the areas of emphasis uh, done, uh, and then it just depended upon the priorities at that particular time. I always tried to make uh, put effort into making England and Scottish junior national teams successful um, within their own right, and that, with no respect to the Scots, principally came trying to get England to Division A status or Division A Division One status. So when I look back now and look at the number of junior teams that had or hadn't qualified for Division One compared to the period that I was there and I was involved with, I feel really good the number that made it to Division 1 and then subsequently remained in Division 1, like the under-20s and the under, I think under-18s, but under-20s principally. So it took a long time to go, but, you know, at the heart of it all was making priorities and making sure that you're doing the best thing. Like, I, I was the Australian in England, you know, trying to do it for Great Britain therein is a complex task, you know. Um, but you did it for the good of basketball. I can remember having conversations with Jesse Suzant before I left at a, at a regional development tournament, you know, and when you ha have those conversations and he tells you the things that he told me at that particular time, then you, then you know what you tried to do, at least had an impact. And as I say with a lot of the younger coaches, Andreas and... Uh, Alan and a few others there that, you know, they're the ones who have to carry the torch for the next generation. So I just tried to do those things and try and involve people and give them opportunity. But it, it did vary depending upon the mix of who my employer was. So, like, I never gave up. Like, I brought Vladin on and, you know, he continued to, to drive the things that I thought were important and, and to continue to do those things. So... 
even though I was full-time GB and, and seniors and national teams director, we were still crucially interested in England junior teams and Scottish junior teams and what was happening in Wales, you know. One of the things you mentioned that I wanted to speak about was the Regional Institute of Basketball uh, model. Obviously, um, well, yeah, I mean, Barking Abbey was selected as a pilot, uh, which you ran there, and then the, the initial plan was to roll that out across well, across the country and have a, have a number of different institutes. I'll be interested kind of hearing your take on kind of what the idea behind uh, the Regional Institutes of Basketball was and then why it never fully kind of reached its potential uh, in terms of getting rolled out, like the original vision for it. Yeah, uh, look, it was in the GB strategy when I arrived, so it was something that I was told to do, basically. Um, oh, so it wasn't your idea? Uh, no, uh, but I had I had sign off from when Barking Abbey went from a pilot to the first and only regional one. So that was my job, and that was after spending a lot of time down there with Barking and talking to Lloyd and Mark and the troops there and observing what was going on. I think the whole thing about the regional institutes was that there was an intention to have multiple, um, but where those were and the definition of regional, like is regional actually Scottish? Like should there have been an England institute or regional, uh, what do we call them? Should, should there have been an England regional institute of basketball? Should there have been a Scotland institute of basketball? And, and you know, in the same breadth, could there have been a Welsh one? You know, and then... If it wasn't the national identity and it was multiple within England, for example, where were they and who was capable of operating at that standard? Because it was a co-investment model. It wasn't, and it was a structure that was kind of put into place. So the reason it ultimately fails is because of the changing funding situations and probably the lack of investment in terms of what was needed to really establish those things. But, you know, with any investment, you have to recognise, well, what money have we got to spend? What are we trying to achieve? And what's the right amount of money to do that? So Barking was a bit different because it had its coaches employed already. Um, So you didn't, you know, you didn't want to come in and subsidise that. So, you know, under the pilot arrangement, it was more, well, operating. What can you do with this budget? How can you improve what you're doing? So the things that ultimately they improved were the strength and conditioning, the sports medicine they got right into, which are the other aspects of basketball coaching that you need. So they ultimately had Paul Fisher before he kind of, when he was in dual roles working out of there, they improved their standards of player welfare, etc. Um, you know, and as well as their coaching, that input. So... People were given access, investment to Lloyd to go to nationals or to go to camps internationally. You know, so the investment was more in that. But to answer your question, it was never enough. It was never enough because that wasn't really what was signed off on by UK Sport, basically. So the 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 slice of the pie that the regional institutes got was limited because there was no other entity that had not any other. Um, uh, source of funding or you know etc so you're, so you're saying like Barking Abbey was unique because they had that funding source from the school that was substantial compared to other institutions yeah, yeah and, and there was and that's why I came so trying to replicate that elsewhere which is effectively what ACE is now growing into um, but then selecting between well who's the next best ACE college to become a regional and 
we don't want them next door, so we don't want Oakland's, you know, being one and Barking Abbey being the other. So, you know, is Bristol far enough or is Reading far enough? And they're still going to fight over recruitment of, of players. So there was a lot of things to it, but it never reached its full potential because I think it was destabilised strategically by the change in funding cycles of UK sport. Um, but the intent was there, and certainly there were uh, efforts to grow it, um, but it didn't didn't pass muster. At that stage, there were other bushfires and other things that needed to be done. So, uh, so barking was maintained and eventually deteriorated as an investment, but that's only because of the UK sport decision and and I guess the inability to then, or not inability, but not having the vision to then try and roll that into a Sport England funding agreement or whatever. Uh, so because there was never people collaborating that way or seeing it that way and there was always a political perspective to most things that happened with GB. Do you think basketball uh, in this country is, is made more complicated by kind of having this sort of hybrid model between educational institutions and clubs rather than just clubs or just educational institutions for sort of development? I think you've got to have the educational sector involved. When ACE was started to evolve and they were starting to employ coaches, I thought that was good. Um, but I'll go back to my original point about the governance of it. Like it's it's too easy to, you know... Well, put it this way. In Australia, there's a lot of schools at the at the lower tier who also form clubs to compete in domestic local association competitions. They don't do it at the higher level, but they do it at the lower level. So I think that trend is acceptable in the UK. I think that is there. Uh, I think education, and you, you know, Sam, the popularity of those age groups, those, you know, junior high school and senior high school age kids. So my take was it was a good thing for England because more colleges were investing in coaches and therefore there were more coaches making a livelihood and working on development. So that was my take at the time. I don't know what it's like at the moment. Um, I think the bigger question is, access to competitions etc so you had and charlie ford did a good job but you almost had the ace stream of competition and then you had the nbl one stream so the, the question was more about well did you need both should you be in both what do you need to develop etc so but uh, i was happy with the evolution of ace and i supported it you know we ran conferences for coaches and I think the medical one still continues to this day. You know, like that was unheard of. And people being attracted as volunteers or specialists, outsiders in the areas of strength and conditioning, etc. cetera, um, there had to be an end game to get volunteers in. If, if the end game with those people could be employed either part-time or casually by an educational institution and the kids got the value out of it and the coaches got improved knowledge out of it, then it was a sensible thing to do. Yeah, I was going to ask uh, with, with uh, one of the things that's discussed a lot is sort of growing the British basketball economy and sort of having at the moment one of the things that makes things difficult. And I think back then it was this, was the same was ha- being so reliant on a volunteer workforce. Uh, you know, when people aren't being paid to do certain things and you're just relying on their goodwill, it's it's hard to hold them accountable uh, for stuff. 
you know, in your experiences, like back at that time, um, was that a frustration for you in any part where you just you didn't necessarily have a bunch of of paid staff uh, for different clubs for different programs that you could then you know speak to on a regular basis and they could be fully committed to it because they've got other things going on, uh, or or did you find that not not as much of a factor? Um, I've been used to working with volunteers in various capacities here, whether I was a fellow volunteer or a volunteer leader or a professionally employed people to lead volunteers. So that wasn't new to me um, going to the UK. Um, the why should why people get involved with things was always the crutch, you know, and is it just I want to coach the national junior team and I'm the best coach because I, I you know, won this particular age group or and then you go off and do your own thing without any supervision, you know, or accountability back to the stakeholders of England basketball. That that type of thing kind of not got to me, but I was critically aware of. Um, but you manage that different ways. Um, but I don't think uh, the original question was about volunteers. I didn't look at it as a negative. The biggest negative that I think I remember was accessing courts uh, and the facilities and then the growth structure around it. So, like, for example, I was really pleased ultimately that Russell and Leicester Riders built upon a similar vision, vision that Newcastle Eagles had but then grew it a lot better and then you saw that as the ability to grow a central venue league or what I would call a local association under that. So, but the, the reason that was prevented was because of facilities. The reason that people worked in isolation is that courts were only one court. You walked in and out. In Australia, there's 16 courts running down and out. So you run across people. You organise people. You can watch multiple games. You can watch and learn. And I think that was one of the big things that no one was there able to observe anyone else because everyone was working in isolation because of the venues. You know, they're just doing their own thing. And it was like two and a half hours away or something like that. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of time invested, you know, in um, mainly because the facilities didn't have multiple courts that were accessible for local clubs and clubs weren't aligned male and female. And you had different age groups at different times. And that, to me, got back to the governance issue. Well, what type of groupings do we have? You know, sh should Division 1... And then you had the promotion relegation, which doesn't happen in Australia. Like, I know it's a, a British soccer thing, but it doesn't happen. You know, you get graded in your division, but you don't get promoted and relegated. And what you were one year doesn't mean what you're going to be the next year. So I found that different. Um... And I didn't necessarily see that as a great tool. And often that became a bit of a contentious point on sphere of influence of within England basketball when I was in the dual roles, well, how much could you influence competition? You know, how much could you speak to competitions? Was the chief executive going to support you or just say, put you back into the development aisle or just stick with coaches and players? without the consideration of competition. You can't do that. But, you know, that was the way it was, and that's what it is a lot. You know, referees is different to competition, different to coaches, different to players. Well, players and coaches and referees all need competition. So, and that, that determines standards. So 
that was always important to me, but it was something that I couldn't influence. Um, but I did like it when, you know, uh, youth-orientated academies, I think, Barking Abbey and maybe Bristol at one stage end up winning a Division One NBL 1 title with a significant amount of youth that had progressed through their thing. So I was more in favour of that. But the volunteer thing, it's, in, it's an economy of scale, and I think it was inhibited because the lack of a central purpose, you know, like if, if Derby had a four-court stadium, you know, would you have three different clubs in Derby? And if they did, what level would they be playing about? And then what would be playing at the next level? But, you know, that, that was too hard to overcome. I focused mainly on changing the area performance centres into regional performance centres and expanding them so that more kids and both genders, so there was only, there was, I think it was only two girls programs in the whole, you know, country, and there was five boys or something like that, and I just made the decision, I said, we're going to run, they're going to be called regional performance centres, and we're going to align them with every region of governance within uh, England basketball, and that, that was a huge thing, and, you know, I remember having conversations with Keith Mayo, because you know, he had a governance structure about how that would operate. I just built to the existing infrastructure, but could there have been more investment in those uh, regions and regional performance? Yeah, there could have been, but you've got to prioritise it. But I tried to build it to that, so it ended up with the nine regions, male and female, I think they call them hubs or something now, I'm not sure. But the fact that they're still there is a good thing for development. And it's a good opportunity to bring people, to take them away from the competition mode into the develop mode and to again that, get the young coaches involved. So I was pleased that, you know, when I was leaving, you know, the older coaches were identifying younger coaches to work in that space. And we were getting a lot of coaches who wanted to work in that. A lot of them have now progressed up the food chain. But that was the value of that. So I tried to build... The regional performance centres aligned to the regional teams and we had a tournament which wasn't about competition so I made sure it was called a regional development tournament which is similar to what we have in Australia. And yes, we wanted to see the standard but that's when we did all the things like that. I can remember seeing Dwayne Latier at uh, under 14s, um, yeah, way back at, um, forget the place it's called, the historic home of England football which is only a two-court stadium, but it was the home of schools under 14 competitions. So I kind of liked the idea that the charm was uh, rolled over into under 14 regionals with England basketball, despite all the politics between the educational sector and England basketball about taking over their competitions, the schools' competitions. But uh, So that's what I tried to do, and that was what I prioritised and tried to highlight the development was different to competitions. But... If you want higher standards, you've got to look at your competitions. But, you know, it, I can remember watching uh, national finals, top fours, and there was a lot of good talent in the final teams. But, you know, that was basically through recruitment rather than development, although it was changing. You, your other big project um, was the areas of emphasis. 
uh, which was essentially a, a sort of document to try and standardise the level of coaching that, that players were receiving and, and, and the level of coaching that was being given by coaches to, to sort of um, top players. Can you kind of talk about the sort of the idea behind the areas of emphasis and, and why you thought it was necessary? Yeah, so basically it was in my brief. So when I was interviewed uh, by Ron Tiller and whoever else it was at the particular time, they see, you know, what are your thoughts on on curriculums and establishing a curriculum. So, like, you're talking to a 16-year teacher, veteran at that stage, who can tell you about curriculums on bookshelves and stuff like that. Um, so I actually said to Ron at the time, I said, well, I don't believe in curriculums. and I, I think what you need is an area of emphasis, which is kind of like a... a you know, not a complicated trying to be everything to everyone, but to try and focus a particular group. Um, so that was always in the original brief. I didn't deliver it in my first term, but I, I think I delivered it in my second term in the joint positions of head of performance. But I wanted to get it done. And we did it. We had a performance management group, which was set up by GB, which was the home nations. So each of the home nations had people into it. So... I thought the areas of emphasis was a good way of getting those uh, performance management group people together working for a common cause rather than being England, Scotland, Wales. So they started, so it was driven through there and then we selected editors like um, I think Trudy Hopgood might have done offence. Um, I might have given defence to Tony Garbaletto. You know, someone else had something. Someone else was on about shooting. It didn't matter whether you're talking to, you know, Jimmy Guyman or someone else. Everyone would say England kids can't shoot. So that's why shooting got in there. So we, we prioritised the ones. And I thought the one that they were missing was um, the physical development. Um, so so I think it was eight or nine areas of emphasis basically came down from talking to people what you think needed to be organised. Uh, and... I put them in a different order, which got debate amongst people. Someone's, well, why is footwork and movement by itself as opposed to part of offence or, or defence? And then, well, that's, I did it so we can talk about it because footwork and balance and stuff like that wasn't that good and a lot of people weren't doing that. And when you're time poor and you're playing too much competition, you don't have enough time of the fundamentals. So it started out of, out of the request, out of my first job, um, it changed from a curriculum which I didn't believe in to an areas of emphasis. It ended up bigger than what I wanted it to be, but it did attack key areas which I identified collaboratively by people. So it addressed the things that everyone was talking about. Like everyone, like I remember being with Carl uh, Brown at a national championship in Estonia. I think he was assistant coach to Simon Fisher at that stage, under 16 Ingleton. And I was having a debrief with him and... Um, I'd watched a game and someone played zone against us and I was talking about the tactical adaptions that may have been um, used for that game to solve the problems to get the win. And the statement I got was, well, the reason we failed is because English, English players can't shoot. You know, that, that was the statement that was made to me. I mean, God bless him. Uh, Carl made that, but I carried it through and I went, well, I've got to dispel that myth. What are we going to do about it, you know? Um, so subsequent generations of kids could shoot. Um, you know, they, some were better than others. Like, um, 
you know, Sam Randall, Jacob Randall. Like, subsequently, there were kids who kind of came through who could be the master of their own because we, we didn't make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the areas of emphasis was important in that area. Uh, there's probably too many recommendations, um, but the rationale of breaking it up of why it was important and getting the coaches to sign off. For those who read it, it became important. Those who didn't read it, it's it's just another curriculum document. It just sits on the shelf. But it became, uh, we have similar here in Queensland now, we have style of play, same thing. I had to, when I come back, I had to write the style of play, you know, for, for our state teams because that's the framework around what your teaching is. So that was the importance of the areas of emphasis. It became the framework around it all. So, you know, uh, so that when we went to, international competition we could better talk about defending the three and the second line of defense being closer to the, to the corner uh, on you know dribble drive pen, penetration off a side pick and roll like that became evident very early to me when I was supervising England teams but unless I had the areas of emphasis there to highlight defense and those things I really didn't have a charter it didn't matter whether someone read it or not the fact was, it's there, it's important to us. What's your knowledge of it? And if you don't know the knowledge, then you, you should go and read it, basically. Interesting. One of the other things that had been singled out in the areas of emphasis, one of the points was point guard play. Um, why was that? Why did, why was, uh, or why did you think that British basketball had been historically poor at developing point guards? That's what people told me. That's what people told me. So it went in there. So it's it's an issue everywhere. Like in my current state, my current role here is, that, you know, we make sure we've got the bookends, we've got the big ones, and they're, they're skillful, and we've got the point guards um, because you can't compete at the next level, whatever the next level is, unless you've got good point guards. And that that was evident within the national senior teams, I think. Um, the fact that um, at the 2012 Olympics that... Um, Nate, who was a shooting off guard, you know, was playing a bit of lead guard, um, even though Andrew Lawrence kind of came out of our futures program and made that particular team. But Andrew was probably the first of the, the point guards, but he was like at the older end of the spectrum when I was in the pathways. So I got him as an under-20s. But the subsequent guards, we wanted to be good, you know, and, and they were, you know, can't think of all of them at the moment, but they needed to be good. So point guard play became an area of emphasis on what it is. And I was lucky enough to, um, in that section, I um, I conferred with Henrik Detman. I don't know if you were Henrik Detman's, uh, made his name in Germany by winning a world championship uh, medal. He's the uh, Finland men's senior coach when they've qualified for Eurobaskets and world championships. Very credentialed guy, so he collaborated on the point guard section with us. So we kind of got it pretty well right, um, and it had a lot of good input from people who know. So, but it was there as a framework and a reference point, you know. But it was it was it was obvious that we needed to do that, and it's obvious everywhere, even in Queensland where I'm now, you know. But we've probably got more choices. 
is it is it um obviously now now we're in a situation where where basically the area's emphasis isn't really used it's not not referenced uh is that disappointing for you like a document that was obviously so much work was put into it and it was the first thing that it was the first time as far as i'm aware that sort of uh we tried to standardize what was being taught to to junior players and have that sort of framework that people could could use but you know now years later uh it's kind of just yeah just falling into the ether so to speak well there's no one um, no one to emph- to emphasize it or sell it or re-emphasize it but it always had the potential of just being a curriculum document like the curriculum document only serves its purposes at that particular time it's not for an ever and a day type thing um it it did disappoint me we spent a lot of time on how do we roll it out so actually the other work which i was really proud of which was probably done better uh, and had more resources into it was the club skills guide so the club skills guide was an interactive uh, thing rather than uh, pages and pages and we spent a fair bit of money on commissioning um, uh, sporting on coaching or whoever they're called to do it all and I got Lurl Deng to sign off on it and it was an electronic version, so I get a lot more disappointed that that one isn't there rather than the areas of emphasis, which was too big. But having said that, in the COVID era, I'm always getting Zoom co- Zoom calls or reach-outs from young British coaches, wherever they are in Canada or the UK, and, you know, they're talking, and some of them have read it. So, you know, so it served its purpose at that particular time. Um it was a labour of love, um, but as I say, it was a labour of love to get a framework around a problem which was a lot bigger than GB and uh, one or two people employed. Um, so, But because you don't have that governance structure, you don't have the influence over it, so it goes back to that other thing. So, it's, you know, It does disappoint me it died, but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So the other obvious big thing that we haven't spoken about is the is the Olympics. Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be interested in kind of hearing sort of your take when 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 you first came into the role, knowing that the Olympics was what three three years away. At that time, did you believe uh, that the Olympics could end up being you know a huge potential explosion point for the sport and and sort of grow uh, the number of people that are interested in it and put a spotlight on it in a way that has never been done before? Yeah, that was my hope. Yeah, that was one of the reasons of taking the role on in the first place. That if and you know Sam yourself and your listeners will know how big the game is worldwide. So the fact that it may not have reached its perceived potential or it's underachieving or it's not got its thing together, whichever word you want, is disappointing. Um, and equally disappointing has been the. The, I'll call it inconsistency, and I'll probably get some government official offside with this, the inconsistency of the funding schemes that were in the UK at the time. I can remember sitting in, when I was in a dual role and looking at the amount of investment that hockey got, field hockey that is, from Sport England and UK Sport and comparing that to basketball, and I was staggered. And then I'd look at netball, and like I, I understand, I get it all the reasons. But and I said that said this at the time, and I may be wrong, but no, there was no way, in my opinion, that field hockey at the junior level was bigger than basketball in England. In my opinion, just a 
guesstimate based upon it. Yet its funding level was three, four times what it could be. So, yeah, I, I think it had that potential, but I don't think, and I wrote it down here, I don't think the transition investment strategy from UK sports because of its metal focus and the divide, because it's very easy to say, well, it's not our department, it's the other department, Sport England, and flip-flop between the two. But, you know, if there was to be a legacy, then there should have been a legacy strategy of investment for the particular sport, which, in my opinion, possibly could have been better coordinated between the lead agencies within the UK, be it Sport England and that, whatever. Different people argue at different time, you're getting enough money and stuff like that. I know that in the initial days, I had to put the, the performance plan together for England basketball to get money. So I worked with those guys really closely. But it was it would always go to someone else's desk and someone else would sign off on it. So it was someone else's perception of the amount of money that you should get. And I forget there was always some issues that Keith was always fighting against compared to some of the other sports. So... The way that those agencies, uh, and they're always trying to be good, don't get me wrong, but I found that, I found that if you look at what happened, so I took over from uh, Chris Spice when he jumped to swimming and I uh, was offered the national team's director's position. My first job in January 2013, I walked into the old UK sport offices um, in London with Roger Morland's. And we thought we were just going for a catch-up meeting or whatever. And, and it was the middle of January and um, just kind of come off Christmas and stuff like that. And he said, uh, I want to advise you, your funding's been cut. So that was the year after the Olympics and the legacies and stuff like that. And my jaw just dropped. Roger's jaw just dropped because there was no inkling of any transition strategy. Some decision had been made, but no transition investment strategy had been made to preserve the legacy that the governments were trying to do. So then that started the, the big fight, the political fight, which eventually got the, uh, actually it got 60% of the funding restored. Not 100%, 60%. So we were down 40%. It was still enough to do the things that we needed to do, but it was down 40% and it was less than other people. Uh, other team sports particularly, who are getting double dips uh, within the within the funding. Um, so that became really, really hard. Um, and then throwing programs together uh, when you have your no, no funding, and then they go, oh, you got funding, and then you have to put a preparation program together. Thank God for Spain and Greece that kind of came to our party and helped us recognise our dilemma and we threw some good preparation programs together for both men and women and actually got our highest results you know at, at that euro basket um, but imagine what it would be like if there was a transition policy for a sport like basketball which was better coordinated within government and that had supported governance by the home nations like I don't want to go into the what's happened after I've gone but like you know, if you want the sport to be um, uh, go ahead, it needs to be well managed. It needs to present well. In the early days, it didn't always present well, and there was divided loyalties between the home nations 
and GB. And then that didn't sit well with UK. And then to please UK Sport, Basketball changes its identity to GB. And that further complicates the whole thing, whereby there, sh there could have been a legacy structure. If people looked at the things that were subsequently that were brought to the table that they neglected to do in their assessments in the first place, we would have had a better legacy and we would have had a better transition strategy. And, and, and I, don't, I think it would have been more stable and it would have been able to grow. Uh, but once that was pulled, everyone just went their own ways and forgot about pulling together because there was no purpose to do it. That's just my take on it. So. What do you think, uh, if someone was to ask you, like, what was the Olympic legacy for, for British basketball? Like, what would you say are sort of the, the, the key elements that have been left behind, so to speak, that have helped sort of the sport that wouldn't have otherwise existed if, if the Olympics didn't happen? Well, there's multiple levels to that, Sam. Um, if I think about the areas that uh, I was involved with, which were better as a result of the Olympics than if it hadn't have had the investment, then I'll go back to that regional structure within England basketball about the development pathways, the RPCs, the uh, regional tournaments, and the ability to ungrade from clubs into regions and to get different people involved with coaching different kids. Um, I think that's stood, from what I can gather, as, and I don't know how it's been managed, but I, I think that's stood stood in good terms. So I think a lot of the stuff in the pathway stuff is obviously paid off if you look at the Commonwealth Games teams and the coaches there that went off with that. Um, I don't know how that process was done, but if I look at the consistency there, I go, well, that's progress, and then, you know, the women do particularly well. And so I think there are good things. Um, I think the investment helped, even though it was short-term, I think the investment did help particularly England and Scotland basketball. Um, but it, its lack of being able to be sustained didn't... There were no alternative sources of income to drive similar strategies, so therefore they dry up. So therefore people went back to not being collaborative and not, not working together because they didn't have a need to, um, you know. So I think the legacy has been disappointing, I'd probably say, in... And I'm not saying that from a basketball. I'm saying from a, what the government said it wanted to achieve. Like a lot of these governments everywhere go, well, there's going to be a legacy and stuff like that out of it. So I think the real question is what was the was the legacy achieved by uh, the London Games? And if one of the questions was it should spur other people, well, the participation rates in basketball excels and when I was there, it was second only to football in the males component. So if that was a legacy that was achieved, then that's good. But it also is a reason why it should have had continued investment. One of the things that you seem to have alluded to, and a lot of other people have spoken about, um, is the the sort of the political side of things. Uh, you know, there was it was well, it's. it's been well well documented that you know British basketball was almost uh, seen to be operating independently of the home nations. There was sort of infighting between the home nations and British basketball. Do you feel like sort of having British basketball as a separate organisation, so to speak, with separate staff, separate offices, um, 
and being, you know, you said at the start, like you were perceived as GB uh, in, in that initial role, which kind of caused problems in, in certain places. Do you feel like that uh, has, is one of the things that's held back the, the potential of the Olympic legacy and what could have, what could have been done off the, the back of the Olympics by having uh, essentially a separate organization uh, to, to run the Olympic programs? Um, I'll come from the back end of this to the front end. So my reflection is what is being British? So British is something that a Scotsman, a Welshman or Englishman is when they're overseas. But when they're at home, they're not British. They're English, they're Scottish or they're Welsh and very fervent. You can see that in the political spectrum and the votes and all that type of thing. So I think that identity of GB and how you manifest it for an Olympics every four year and fit that into a basketball context was very difficult. Like if you look at hockey, England becomes GB in the fourth year. It's just that simple. And if they want to select someone from Scotland or Wales or, you know, nor wherever, they can do that. That that model, I guess, could have been done. But when UK Sport, this is my understanding, when UK Sport decided to invest in basketball, it didn't want to make that happen. It didn't want to give the money to England basketball. So it formed its own company entity to safeguard the millions of investment that it was making because that was its terms. So the reason for the separate entity was, and this is fact, was because UK Sport wanted it. The second aspect of that is what is British and what is English and what is Scottish, whatever. So you had that governance model and that's where there were great attempts to try and unite. So I worked in the early years with a performance management group which had Welsh, Scotland, England. From the years that I was there, that was always a collaborative workplace. That was always trying to work and it was focused on how to do things better so, you know, um, Lucy, I can't think of her name, you know, from Wales did a section and was uh, part sub-editor for the areas of emphasis. They all had input into it, but they were all influencing different things. Like Welsh junior basketball is totally different to Scottish junior basketball, totally different to England junior basketball. Um, and then there were attempts to um, align people. So... I think it's fair to say, history would say that Scotland was more aligned with GB than what England was. And that probably goes back to the first point I made, which but clearly was a UK sport decision. Um, I think where it becomes interesting is, and like there were some great people, like Bill McGuinness, God bless him, was a champion, champion leader of basketball. And many others, other people have different opinions about other people. But I can tell you that board in my time were very switched on to trying to do the right thing by basketball and were acutely aware of the politics within Scotland and England and the wild child of Wales, if I could call it that. Um, but the politics certainly didn't help it. Um, the constitution of the entity becomes very, very interesting because of that thing. So... You know, the Union Jack flies here. What's the, fly, what's the flag of Scotland? What's the flag of England? It's not the Union Jack. So, so there was a big task there. So 
it was very hard. I guess that's where I my big learning was how do you galvanise people who have separate divisions, you know, which have come out in political voting streams and stuff like that. So I know I'm not answering your question, but I, I'm trying to allude to how hard the governance and the model was at that particular time for those people. And it was easy for people to say stones, like you should be spending it on this and whatever. A lot of it was tied funding. It was tied funding. This is the entity. This is where the money goes. So, yeah, I would have loved more money for the Regional Institute. But someone says, here's this is your cut of the slice. You try and make it work, you know. So in anything, you have to build up the business case and go on to it. And I just think the, the lack of alignment and the lack of collaboration between Sport England and... Um, and UK sport also help hurt the sport because if the legacy was increased participation, and I think they're probably well-funded now, but it was too easy to throw them back and forth. Um, I think the GB entity and the governance model is a very interesting one. It's a bit like the uh, lot of all the Premier League clubs done over there at the present moment, mate. They've all gone into a Super League, and uh, who made that decision? So... Um, you know, governance, is it shared and collaborative? Is it open and transparent, etc.? So um, hopefully I'm giving your listeners a bit of an insight into the intrigue about, to me, it wasn't one or the other. There was good people involved with it, but it was a difficult task and it was governed by where UK Sport wanted the money. And then ultimately, when UK Sport withdrew the money, then it became even more convoluted because then Sport England kind of came in on the on my my last sector, just before I flew out, subsidising the GB teams or the national teams, you know, where to me that whole thing could have been, if they were for the sport and the legacy was participation, then there could have been a better government transition strategy and less disruption in, uh, in the short term to their longer term goals. And then if that had been stable, maybe with stable governance and collaboration between the home nations and the leaders of those particular people, then the sport would be grown. But there was always this possessive entity, I think, between who is GB, who's running GB and England. And I think I think that's where it kind of ultimately showed out in, in what happened subsequently um, with the politics of it all. Um, but it's a shame. And then final question, knowing what you know now, uh, you know, and obviously having had a chance to reflect on, on everything uh, from, from when you were involved through, through to the Olympics, post-Olympics, if you were to go back and you were hired in that position again, is there anything that you would do differently? Is there anything that you would change um, about how you went about things? Um, I think it would have been fine-tuning. I think my, my key principles were always communication collaboration whether you knew someone was your enemy or didn't agree with you or didn't like the gb badge you, i always knew who i was sitting with um and at the end of the day it's kind of like a mate jim wright tells me in scotland i can remember going up and doing a a clinic on the court up there in scotland for all the wise coaches up there and if you've ever walked into scotsman's den you know of 55 warriors sitting around ready to critique and pull apart an Australian representing GB but coming from the England basketball offices, then you've got some idea of the magnitude. But 
I dare say I knew what that was. Um, and I dare say that if that was a battle, I won that battle ultimately. But there's always battles that you could fight fight a bit differently, uh, do things a bit better. Um, the hardest thing, Sam, is it was a moving feast. It just kept changing because of, you know, position changes or whatever. Um, and that's why I like, you know, the, at least the regional structure's been there. Uh, Scotland tried to develop something similar, eventually got their teams into WNBL, uh, you know, in, in that league. So... You know, the alignment with the BBL, we haven't touched upon that, but, you know, like, you know, there's some very good people trying to do very good stuff there. Um, but money's short, and it's really hard to do the things that you aspire to. But, you know, so if I came back in and the Leicester Riders were as they are now compared to where when I came in, there was, was a whole scope of things you could probably do better or fine-tune within that scope of things, but... You know, they hire coaches, either full-time or part-time. They have the various tiers about what there's going. They've got, they've got a university involved, you know. Like, so you would hope that we'd be more of those type models around um, because that's the closest thing to what I would call an association in Australia. But, uh, yeah, so interesting question. Um, I don't have to worry about it, Sam, is the other way to... Um, to look at it, um, I don't have any regrets. I have regrets. I got, I got chased down by media at, at one stage when I was doing the national directors of coaching position, and there were some things happening behind the scenes which were unsavoury that I didn't like. But no one knows what I had to go through in those times, the shoes and the different parts, and trying to make it all work. You know, I'm lucky that. You know, we got good staff. Like I gave Nate Ranking his start in coaching. You know, um, I got other people on the way, like Andreas and Alan Keane. You know, so there's a lot of good things to do. You try and do more of it. Um, you know, but the landscape changes. The caravan moves on. You'd have to kind of go in there, and you know, one person has to work within the structure of governance. So that's always going to influence you. So on what you can do and what you can achieve. So. You try and influence that, but you know you can't change it in the short term. Perfect. That's a perfect place to leave it. Warwick, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Super insightful. I think people will find it uh, really interesting. Um, yeah, and I wish you all the best uh, for the remainder of the season. Thanks, Sam. Psst. Hey, podcast listener. But you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now, uh, open up your podcast player, go to the Hoops Fix podcast, you'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.